Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We've got a special show for you today. It's our 10th episode. We're in London, and the one and only Tim Henman took the time between BBC broadcasts to speak with us. There's Paul McCartney, there's David Beckham, there's the Queen, and there is absolutely Tim Henman. He had an amazing tennis career, he was the hope of a nation, and now he chairs the tennis committee at Wimbledon. He broadcasts a bit at the BBC, and he runs an incredible foundation. We're going to find out how they changed the grass on him at the All England Club, his impressions of the new ATP team competition, and why Wimbledon finally decided to end the pain of the tiebreakerless match. Man, we are sitting in the BBC radio. Radio TV. This is the TV broadcasting studio. studio For the world tour. Overlooking the court. And Tim Henman is the other gentleman you hear. Uh, how are you, my man? I'm really good. Good to see you. Long time no see. It has been a long time. Yeah, yeah. Tim and I, I probably met him when he was 23 or 22 or 21. Yeah. He was a hotshot Englishman. I was just coming on the tour at that stage. 97. Yeah. 96 was the first year I did well at Wimbledon. Uh, broke into the top 100 that year yeah. and, and uh, finished inside the top 30. So I was moving in the right direction. Tim, you still look like you could play pro <laughs> tennis, man. It's unbelievable. Looks can be deceiving. So in an effort to keep things moving and cover a wide range of topics, we're using a five-set format. This is our first set. We call it the off-the-court report. Yeah. What do you do all year? Well, that's a good question. I, I stopped playing 11 years ago. I retired in 2007. Um, I'm married with three children. I've got three girls who are 11, 13, and 16. Three girls. Yeah, I'm outnumbered. You I'm play outnumbered. zone defense. Yeah, exactly. I'm up against it, but uh, my family's good. Touch wood. Uh, what do I do off the court? Um, I am involved in the tournament at Wimbledon, so I sit on the tournament board. Um, so we are involved in, you know, the club and the championships, giving the executive team sort of direction, the way that we think the, the, the tournament should move in and the club, which has been fantastic. I've been involved probably for the last 10 years. What's an example of something that you're, you do over at Wimbledon? So I chair, uh, we have our main board, but then we have different subcommittees. So I'm in, I chair the tennis subcommittee. So that's anything tennis related during the championships. So tie breaks in the final set, that was part of the, the meeting that I was involved in. And, and there's a decision that we've implemented for next year. And you pulled your trigger on that fairly quick. Yeah, I think this year, um, when you look back at the championships, obviously the 26-24 Anderson is in a semi-final match. Um, I think that had a huge bearing on the decision because in the past we've had some extremely long matches, but they not necessarily had uh, an impact on the outcome of the tournament. You think back to the Isna Mahu, that was 70-68, but it was earlier on in the tournament. This match, I think, being 26-24 in the semi-finals, there's a question mark whether we're going to have a final. And wiped out Kevin. It did. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, I think okay. then he's, he's at such a big disadvantage. So 12 all final set tie breaks, I think certainly in the men's, you look at that and say, well, it's the equivalent of six sets of tennis. If you haven't got a winner after six sets, then it's maybe time to play a tie break. Tim, you are you do you do a touch of broadcasting. Yeah, I I, uh, I do three weeks for the BBC, so I do two weeks uh, at Wimbledon, eight days here at the World Tour Finals. Um, still involved in tennis, I still work with HSBC, Jaguar, and Rolex. Those are the three 
Um, you know, brands that sponsor me when I was playing and I'm lucky enough to still be an ambassador with them. Away from tennis, I'm a golf addict. Um, oh, so really? I, I still, uh, I like to play golf when I can, when the weather's a bit warmer than it is now. And I have a charity foundation. So uh, Tim Hemmer Foundation, we work and support disadvantaged young people and that's taken up more of my time. Tim Hemmer Foundation. You have a gala, you have a... Yeah, we have our main fundraiser is a Pro-Am tennis tournament, which is the Wednesday before Wimbledon. So I get 10 of the pros who are about to play at the championships to partner 10 amateurs who pay to play. And uh, we, have, uh, we have a tournament. We then have a, a gala dinner with uh, uh, an auction and entertainment. And that's, um, yeah, it's been, it's, been, uh, it's been a great event. And uh, as I said, to support um, education and health and disadvantaged young people is, uh, is a worthy cause. I mean, I know a lot of athletes, particularly those who have been fortunate in tennis, have foundations. I wish we heard more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to give back. You know, I've been very fortunate with the opportunities I've had. And so if I can help in those areas, uh, all the better. All right, moving into our second uh, set, we call this the On the Court Report. Yeah. I know we're at the ATP Finals, but I'd, I'd like to get your uh, impressions of what you saw from the women this year. Did you see anything that really interested you? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always going to be a lot that interests you. And I think when you, when you reflect on the top of the game, um, I think Simona Halep, um, what she achieved. And she's, uh, you know, she's not the, the biggest girl, but she's such a fighter. She's such a, a competitor. I mean, that's um, amazing so, to go to number yeah, one. Amazing, amazing achievement. Um, for me, uh, two elements to it. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki winning in Australia. She's been so close to winning a major before. Um, and it was great to see her finally, you know, get over that uh, that hurdle. And, and uh, I, I really enjoyed, I hit with her at, uh, um, before Wimbledon, she was here in London looking to prepare on grass and, and uh, she, she wanted to play at Wimbledon but she didn't have anyone to play with and as a member of the club I was able to invite her as my guest. Uh, what did you think of Kazakina? What did you think of um, Sabalenka? What did you think of Naomi Osaka? Did you, did they were pretty, pretty Amazing, good. yeah. Incredible performances and, and uh, I think not only on the women's side but certainly when you reflect on the men's side we've had this golden era of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray and and, and, and Vavrinka as well, but we need that next generation coming through. So when you, you know, you talk about Zverev, you know, he's here at the World Tour Finals. He's a he's a great player. You look at uh, Ashinov winning in in Paris Bercy. You see Chorich. You see Carl Edmund from the UK. There's some, you know, there's some good players knocking on the door, and hopefully, you know, they can make their their breakthrough in the not too distant future. Is there anyone in the 50s, 60s, 70s that you think is going to make a move? Is there like a real dangerous person we don't um, know about? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, There's no one. Um, I mean, Cecchinato came out of nowhere to blow sure. through the French. Yeah, I mean, that was that's like, right. Um, yeah, I think. I think. Uh, Cecchinato went from like one, 130 to 28. I think the one player that I would like to see and has been talked about, and he's he's sort of knocking on the door, but perhaps only occasionally is Kyrgios. You know, he's uh, he's an enormous talent, but you know there are physical and mental issues there. If he can get those straightened out, then. He's one that I think can make a huge breakthrough in the slams and, and also have a huge impact in the game. Now, Tim, are your sources telling you anything interesting about Kyrgios? Or are you just getting your uh, information? I have no sources. You have no sources? <laughs> no. You're not on the inside? No. I mean, these guys are thick as thieves. They're not, they're not telling us everything. <laughs> Nothing. No, no, you don't, I don't know anything know. about no, him. No, I mean I've seen him play, and he's a great player. You spoken to I'd him. I'd like to. Uh, uh, not really. I mean, I see him at Wimbledon and, and different times. And, and seems like uh, a nice enough. Yeah, guy. he played in my charity event and was fantastic, and um, you know, great uh, support. And I appreciate that. But I want to see him doing 
a better job more consistently on, on these types of arenas. Moving into our third set, this is uh, you know where we discuss your career. And, yeah. You know, I gotta tell you, um, when you go on your Wikipedia, your Wikipedia entry <laughs> is incredible. It's like the encyclopedia, I don't know who wrote that, but that is who unbelievable. Is it? I think so, yeah. But the one part I read was that you, as a, as a kid, as a teenager, were part of a, a group that was financed by a, a person. Yeah. What was that all about? Well, it was, uh, it was really David Lloyd. Um, it was 11 had, players, it, yes, said. There, yeah. there was David Lloyd, um, who was obviously uh, a player and went on to be Davis Cup captain. He set up uh, his indoor clubs in this country and, and really built... David those. Lloyd Clubs yeah. is a famous thing here in, in yeah, England. Yeah, it's the indoor facilities and they've become health clubs and they've expanded. But in the early 80s, that was what he was doing. Um, and then I think he was frustrated by the lack of success of, of British players in this country, so he wanted to, um, you know, really uh, set up an academy. And, and with a, a gentleman called Jim Slater, um, who was a financier in the city, um, he had done something similar with chess, the game of chess. We used to have a lot of um, grandmasters, and, and then we didn't have that. And, and Jim Slater had been involved in almost the resurrection of, of, of British chess players. And, and David Lloyd and Jim Slater linked up. Um, they put together an academy, and I was lucky enough to have the opportunity of joining that. So in about 85, I was 11 years old, I got the opportunity to go to school in London and start practicing, and that had a huge impact on, on my career further down the line. Yeah, an incredible career. Um, did Wimbledon slow down the courts during your <laughs> moment? I mean, I... Yes. They did. 2002, they went to 100% ryegrass. And I, th I think in, you know, when I reflect on it now, it wasn't great timing for me. But um, I think late 90s, early 2000s, it was becoming a little bit of a serving competition. You know, the average rally was probably three shots. And, you know, was it a great spectacle? You could debate it. Um, but I liked serve and volley. I liked, you know, chipping and charging. So the, the conditions prior to that suited me well. Once it went to, to the 100% ryegrass, I made semis in 2002, but when you look back, uh, Leighton Hewitt beat David Nalbandian in the final, Hewitt beat me in the semis. The other quarter finalists were uh, Nicholas Lepenti, there was Xavier Melisse, there was Andre Saar. Those are clay court Those players, Those are clay court man. specialists, and that's, that's when it changed. So from, from then on, it was always gonna be an uphill struggle. Because I remember, I ran into Patrick McEnroe on the street and I said, man, Tim Henman is staying back on his second serve. He's like, Craig, you don't understand. You can't get into the net anymore. You need to be one of these sort of freaks of nature, really, to be serving and volleying, certainly on second serve. And, and uh, when I played Roger Federer and I beat him in 2001 um, in the quarterfinals after he'd beaten Pete Sampras, he pretty much serve and volleyed first and second serve 100% of the time. When he won his first title in 2003, he served and volleyed behind his first serve 10% of the time. So there you can see the extremes and, and uh, how, That's the unbelievable. how the conditions changed. Um, and then, you know, the one match that, you know, was just really, for me, the heartbreaker of all was <laughs> the four-day even Three days. Three days. Three day. Yeah, yeah. 2001. One. Yeah, semifinals. Goran. Um, yeah, we started uh. on the Friday. And uh, I, I was... You, you know, bageled him. I was a little fortunate in the first two sets. He should have been up two sets to love, and I managed to win the second set on a tiebreak to go one set all. And when we sat down at the change of ends, the beginning of the third set, you know, he was frustrated. I mean, mentally, he knew he should have been up two sets to love. I won the third set in 14 minutes, and I only lost four points. 
Beginning of the fourth set, I had all the momentum. We were on serve and it started raining. We had to come back on the Saturday. He was able to regroup, speak to his team, went with serve all the way through the fourth set, went to a tie break. He won that tie break uh, to go two sets all. And then the beginning of the fifth set, it rained. We had to come back on the Sunday. And then on the Sunday, we only played four games, but he got a break of serve. He won 6-3 in the fifth. And, you know, that was where a match where the interruptions, I think, went against me. But people tend to forget all the matches that there were intervals, rain delays that went in my favor. Um, is there any, did anything interesting happen on any of those rain delays that, no? Not you really, can't no. Recall no, anything. there wasn't. I mean, you know, but, but I've played in this country, I've played tournaments since the age of six, and I've had plenty of rain delays. So, you know, over that period of time, I've, I've got used to them. So it didn't, you know, it didn't affect me, but certainly a disappointing result. How would you describe your tennis career to someone that maybe doesn't know anything about you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I dreamt of, uh, you know, I dreamt of being a professional player. My mum took me to Wimbledon the first time when I was six in, in 81, and I saw Bjorn Borg play first round, and that was when I made my one and only career decision. So then to, you know, to have that dream, to live that dream, to win, you know, 11 tour titles, to be four in the world, to make six Grand Slam semifinals, Olympic silver medal. Um, you know, it was unbelievable. It was it was never a real job, it was my hobby. So, uh, um, you know, again, we talked about it, amazingly grateful for that opportunity. Uh, moving into our fourth set, we call this the 10 ball scramble. I'm just, it's word association. Okay. I think Tim is gonna be lightning witty with his, uh, I hope so. With his style. Trying not to let you down. Um, favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Favorite court? Center court at Wimbledon. Favorite city? Not London, you can't say Melbourne, London. probably. I, I always, for us, um, you know, we were in Melbourne in January, it's our winter, it's their summer, it's a great city, great restaurants, great places to stay, great tournament, a Grand Slam, so outside of London, Melbourne. John Lloyd? Uh, great guy, Davis Cup captain, more stories than anyone else I've ever met. Andy Murray. Uh, great guy, someone I've known since uh, he was very young and taught him everything he knows. Henman Hill. Forever. I think we have to stop right there. <laughs> um, this is our fifth and final set. We call this King of the Court and you know, the way you um, conducted yourself throughout your career, um, I think that you're one of the more well-liked players on the tour. You uh, treat everybody so um, respectfully. I, so. Yeah. I think you did. Um, I, I'm curious to know what you think about um, what we're hearing about Labor Cup, Davis Cup, this new ATP team thing that just got yeah. rolled out today. ATP a, Cup. The ATP Cup that everybody's bitching about. Well, okay? I tell you, I, I, I want to know what you think and what you would do if you were the king of the tennis. We need collaboration. So we have a great, uh, we have a great game. We have a great sport. Um, we have a great product. But within that, within the sport, we have a lot of different bodies that don't always work well together. You have the ATP, the men's tour. You have the WTA, the women's tour you have the ITF, you have the Grand Slams. Uh, we need to, to, to try and make sure that all those people can come together to, uh, to work together to not have this type of scenario when we've got different events at different times, too much tennis, 
a messy schedule. And, and you know, hopefully that is something that, uh, you know, we can achieve in the next couple of years. How are you feeling about things? I'm involved at Wimbledon. And Wimbledon, for me, is the greatest uh, tournament in our sport. But it's important that we take a leadership role, a leadership position and do things in the right way and, and we've certainly done that with the event but hopefully you know we can be a part of that process um, so that you know the calendar can become easier to follow not more congested and oversaturated. What needs to get kicked to the curb? I, I think if you had a blank canvas you would say that there are uh, too many events it's hard for the fans to understand what is relevant, what is important. So we have a core structure that works very well, led by the Grand Slams. Uh, we have the nine Masters 1000s under those events. And, you know, we need to make sure that we add the right events at the right time, the right uh, team events, so that we've got something that is easy to follow and, and uh, easy to understand. At the moment, I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. Listen, um, I can't thank you enough Good to see you. So good to see you, and Tim Henman. Let's not leave it another 15 years until we meet up again. My man, that is a promise. Uh, enjoy the rest Thanks. of your uh, afternoon. And man, you are released. Thank you. Thank you. Huge thank you to Tim Henman and all of our friends at the BBC for letting us use their booth. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Matt Dagnan did our mix. I want to thank everyone for listening and for spreading the word. Please keep telling your friends, your neighbors, the groundskeepers, anyone you think would care to know the difference in bounce between the Bermuda and the Rye. If you haven't already, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcast site. And reach out and let us know what you think at info at underreviewtennis.com. We'll be back before you know it, talking tennis with the most interesting people in the sport. Until next time, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.